0: These fictional okay. made up people are thoroughly grounded in actual place <laughs> and time. <laughs> hey readers, I'm Anne Bogle and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 146. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading, and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, I have another What Should I Read Next small world story for you today. Amy wrote in and said, what should I read next has helped me return to my love of reading. I was in a reading rut thanks to the exhaustion of being a homeschooling mom of four kids and your podcast changed all of that. I make goals for my reading life and have been happily blowing past them the past couple of years. Most of my friends know how obsessed I am with the podcast because I recommend it all of the time, even to friends who are not readers by nature. Thanks for that, Amy. Amy. A friend and I even looked into attending the PopCast Live event last year because we live in Louisville, but sadly couldn't make it work. Fast forward to last week when she saw you in Trader Joe's and texted me that she had made an Anne Vogel spotting. I was so jealous. I hope this doesn't all sound too creepy. I was listening to the latest podcast episode and it asked for stories to share, so I had to share this one. Amy goes on to say, I am immensely thankful to you for this podcast. Most of my friends are not readers and it is so great to listen to a podcast where I feel connected to other readers, even though I am not actually meeting them in person. Listeners, book people are the best people and thank you for being Amy's book people. And Amy, thank you so much for sending me that story. It made me laugh out loud. I will keep an eye out for you and your friend when I'm next at Trader Joe's. Readers, I would love to meet you in person, and if you can't bump into me at the Louisville Trader Joe's, maybe we can bump into each other at one of my nearly 20 book tour stops for I'd Rather Be Reading all around the country this fall. I'm kicking things off on Saturday, September 1st at The Novel Neighbor in St. Louis, and you're right, that's three days before the book comes out, but come see me Labor Day weekend, and you get to get it in your hot little hands a little bit early. That is also true for my September 2nd stop at Page One Books in Evanston, Illinois. I'd Rather Be Reading comes out on September 4th, and that week I'll be in Franklin, Indiana near Indianapolis with Wild Geese Bookshop, Louisville, Kentucky at my hometown bookstore, Carmichael's, Davidson, North Carolina at Main Street Books, happy to be back, Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the Bookmarks Literary Festival, another return visit to Malaprops in Asheville, North Carolina, and the Story Shop in Monroe, Georgia. In the following weeks, I know I'm visiting Tampa, Austin, Denver, and Olympia, and we are still adding dates to the tour calendar. I certainly hope I'm coming to a city near you because I would love to tell you happy reading in person. My full events page that we are updating all the time is at anbogol.com slash events. That is Anne with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L dot com slash events. I hope we get to meet in person this fall. Today, I'm having an incredible conversation with Chatty Fall Brown about how war, family, trauma, joy, and hope for the future have shaped her reading life. She requested I recommend a genre I've almost never discussed on the show and her least favorite book. Well, it might surprise you, and her reasons provided so much food for thought for me and might just have me rereading this hated book so I can see what she's talking about. Readers, this is such a good episode, and before we dive in, you should know that today's episode gets emotional at times, and Chatty speaks candidly about topics like genocide, sexual assault, and racism. If those topics might be triggering for you, please take care of yourself by listening with caution or simply setting this episode aside and tuning in next week. Now, let's get to it. Chatty, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm so excited. Can you tell?
0: <laughs> I hope you are. We get to talk books. I have to tell you that you filled out the guest submission form to be on the show. And that is at what should I read next slash guest. And I read about your personal history and your taste in books and what you were looking for and your hated title. I fired off an email to our producer that said, um, can we get Chatty on the show immediately? Because we need to talk about these things. <laughs> so you're in Colorado this morning, right? Well, I came here for grad school,
1: and then I went to work in Cambodia as an art therapist, and then I met my husband there.
0: Turns out he was from Colorado, so I moved back to Colorado. What? What a coincidence. I know. When you went to Cambodia, that was a return trip
1: for you, was it not? My family actually came to the United States in 1984, and I was three years old, and I was actually born in a refugee camp on the thai Cambodian border. And I don't know if you know this, but there was civil war and then there was a genocide. And so my parents were in like labor camps. And when I guess we say liberated, they traveled to Thailand and that's where I was born. That was where the last three kids were born. And so from there we went to the Philippines and we got reintegrated. I told, asked my dad. Like, what does that mean, reintegrate? And he's like, we learn how to prepare for our life in the United States. We learn how to tie shoelaces again. We learn how to brush our teeth again, because it was four years of what we call the killing fields. And so their life had been stripped away and they basically worked all day. Those were the things that they were learning in the Philippines. And then we went to Long Beach, California in 1984. So The trip that I took to Cambodia in 2010 was the first time i
0: actually been to Cambodia. Oh, wow. So those events started when you were so young. Mm -hmm. How did you begin to understand what your parents and your family's history was like as you grew up?
1: I think my dad was the one that kind of kept things, the personal stuff that happened to him quiet. He didn't like talking about it because both my parents and my older siblings went through uh, the genocide. Had PTSD, so it triggered something when they talked about it. it didn't actually help uh, when they were questioned about it. But my mom would sit around with her friends, and they would just talk about it, and they would just say stuff. I knew that I had siblings who passed away. I knew, you know, my parents actually met during the genocide. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they weren't married previously to each other. Their spouses. My mom's husband was killed. My dad's wife died of an illness and they knew each other because so women and men were separated. And so my mom was in the same camp as my dad's wife. And that's how they knew each other. They met in the camp. They met in the camp. And so my parents, well, my mom would always talk about it. She would say, you know, back in Pol Pot's time, we didn't have food. So you better eat what I put in front of you or things like that. And she also talked about the kids that she had, the one that she lost during the time. So it wasn't something that was a surprise. And all of my friends were mostly Cambodian Americans. Mm -hmm. And so they also talked about what happened with their um, families. You know, it wasn't something that was kept from us. We knew about it. But I didn't actually really understand it until I was older, until when I was like in high school, I finally read some books mm-hmm. about what happened. And it was more about politics and stuff. And that's when I realized Cambodia hasn't re- recovered from this. It's a huge thing that happened to my family and to the Cambodian community. Mostly everyone that I know who are a Cambodian American came
0: from refugee families. I'm really curious about what that discovery process looked like as you got older, how you really began to understand as an adult, your Mm. family's history in a new way. Like, so you grew up with it, you were familiar with it, but then you get older and you mentioned reading those books and going, oh. Yeah.
1: So here's what happened. I think as I got older, my parents were much more open to talking about what actually happened and their experiences my mom would start, like, she would be brushing my hair or putting it into braids, and she would start telling me, like, so this is actually what really happened. So this is my experience, and this is how, oh, I'm starting to get a little emotional about this. Yeah, She'll talk about, this is how my child died, how I buried her. Uh, I'm okay with crying, Anne, so. Um, Go ahead. It's just taking over me a little bit. I can't really... Emotional about this, yeah. um, but uh, like she would tell me about walking for days. Back when I was kind of like eavesdropping to the elders when they were cooking or they were talking to each other, they said it with such like, "Oh, well, this happened." It was just so matter of fact that I'm like, "Oh, well, this happened." I had siblings and they were killed, and war happened in my country, and that's just what happens. I just thought it was normal, and then to hear more of the personal side of it. And especially when I went to Cambodia, I had a moment of being very lonely. I went, you know, with this like romantic idea of what Cambodia will be and that I would be embraced. And I was like, oh, I'm coming home. And then they were like, wow, (laughs) how come you're Korean and you can speak (laughs) Cambodian so well? I'm like, wait a second, they don't even think I'm Cambodian. And so... I was feeling very lonely and I called my parents one time and then my dad just opened up and just started talking about like, this is how I was tortured. This is how my wife died. This is how I got separated from your brother. And it was like, it was a lot, but it was, I felt like I finally heard my family's history. I think when you're older, you finally understand like, oh, well, this isn't normal this history isn't really normal. And I know that in every country there's been war, but a genocide, that's not normal. Now, as a parent, I'm wondering, how do I tell my daughter about this? Because she's only like um, 18 months now, so she's not going to really understand. But what do I actually tell her? But like, I think like what I will do is I will tell her, but also talk about like, hey, this is the
0: resilience of your people. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I really admire the way you want to honor your family's heritage with your own daughter.
1: But every time I talk about it, I think you know, I was so little, so it wasn't something that happened to me. But now that I've been back to Cambodia, I think Uh about this, this is what happened. And I remember talking to my older sister and she she went through it and it was her dad that died. And so she's my half sibling. I was saying something about my like venting about my mom or whatever she did. And she said, you know, you have to be gentle with mom. You have to understand what she went through. There are people that would not have had the mental capacity to be able to contain all that she went through. And I was like, oh, she's right. I don't know if I could have survived it. You know, if I I was there at that time, I think that there's like power and strength and resilience to both my parents for surviving. And that's something I want to talk to my daughter about. I think that's important to talk
0: about. There's still hope in it. Now, this isn't as left to turn as it sounds. And I know you know that. Could you tell me about what happened when you got your first library card and why your dad felt so satisfied that that was something you wanted to do? Oh,
1: <laughs> my library card. I think that made my life. That totally changed my life because we were so poor at that time. I mean, we became a res- refugees, so we didn't have money so we didn't own books. The only reading material I ever had was like the, the school book that you bring home to read for homework. And so I saw the library one time because we took a different route home and I told him, Oh, we gotta go to the library. I really want to go to the library. And he's like, okay, let's do it. And so he took us, uh, my sister and I, and I was in third grade. So I was eight years old and there was a checkbox on the application that said, would it be okay if you if your child check out the books from the adult section my dad's like yep okay and so we um turned it in and i got to read like 25 books i read the adult sections too and my dad was very happy about that because i think what happens is he was very well educated in cambodia mm-hmm. they were killing intellects and monks and you know doctors and actors People who would have power would say something against the regime. So he had to hide. He couldn't wear glasses. You know, you you if you were left-handed, you had to change to be right-handed because they would kill you if you were a left-handed person. They killed Muslims, you know. So they were killing people who were just different or had the power to kind of question authority. And so he had to hide his identity and so that my mom— And so education and reading and literature was very important to him. And we had like Cambodian literature, but it wasn't something that I didn't know how to read and write in Khmer, so that was hard for me. And so he was just excited that he had a child that was really into reading, that I was just so in love with reading and the world that it took me. And he didn't have any qualms with me checking out books from the adult section. I would read things like V.C. Andrews, like Flowers in the Attic, and this was way too young, (laughs) um, I will admit, but (laughs) it wasn't just like Flowers in the Attic, I read the whole series. If anyone knows Flowers in the Attic, it is horrific. Like, why did I, as an 11-year-old, pick out that book? I, I still don't even understand How the librarian didn't say, um, maybe, maybe you should wait until you're a little bit older or never, you know, like I was really into true crime at a young age. So I would check out books on Jack the Ripper. I checked out books about murder and I'm just like, what? I can't believe that happened. But my dad was, I think he was just really excited. And the library was like my sanctuary because my parents would be gone working. And so we would go there, we would do arts and crafts. We knew the librarians, got tutoring done there. This is where I think my world just expanded. So there's two books I read in 5th grade. The Thousand Paper Cranes. Yeah. It's about this girl in Japan who she gets radiation from the bombings of Japan by the US. She makes this wish and if you make a thousand paper cranes, supposedly the belief is that you your wish would be granted. And she started making these paper cranes, but she actually died. And this was based on a true story. I read that. And then I read the diary of Anne Frank. Her death is provoked by hatred. And I just couldn't understand why Jewish people were hated. When she was talking about Hitler and all that, and at, towards the end, I was still surprised that she was taken away. And it was like, wait, I don't understand. Like, why did she die? Why was there a concentration camp? I still, I think at that time I was still very young. For whatever reason, I understood nuclear warfare better than I understood concentration camp. I think, I know that sounds a little strange, but I think it's because I was connecting um, the first book, The Thousand Paper Cranes, more to like, yeah. oh, it's war. That's normal. You know, my parents told me about war. Yeah. We got bombed too by America. That's just what happens and where. The idea of concentration camp as a fifth grader, and we never talk about European history at that time or um, Jewish history or the Holocaust. So that was something new to me, that someone would kill somebody because they didn't like their race. And so those were the two books I would say that I cried and identified with. But still, the last one, I, I still couldn't understand. And, and a part of me as an adult, I still don't
0: understand it. that something like this would happen. Do you like that about yourself? Or is it confusing to you that it just doesn't quite compute?
1: You know, my brother one time said that you're so gullible. And I was like, <laughs> what? He's like, people are mean. People are just mean. Sometimes they don't even have reason to be mean. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> And he said this when I was like in my twenties. and I was like, wait, what? That's so, Ah, I don't like that at all. I, I think, Yeah, I don't know if I I particularly like it, but I I think I do like that I still hold on to hope that people have a little bit of glimmer in them. Yeah, Sometimes we're taught hatred and if we can just change society and change what we tell our kids that, yeah, there is hope. They say that a language, a new language can be born from one generation. So if your parents, like a whole community started this new language with their kids And they will continue it on with their kids and teach their kids. And so, yeah, I do believe that things can change. I don't think it's as bleak as we make it out to be right now.
0: Chatty, can we go back to when you were 15? Yes. I was surprised to read that your given name is not actually Chatty. No. But you read a book and then you were inspired.
1: My given name is actually really long. It's Sophia Chatty, yeah. And for my family, I just go by Jadia because my sister's name is Supip Lakana. And so when we were younger
0: in elementary school, we were big Supip and little Supip. And so, oh, that's so cute. I mean, you might have hated it being the little one, but that's so cute. I
1: didn't actually hate it because it made me feel really connected to my older sister. And she's only about like 11 months older than me. But there were moments where it would really confuse people. And when I was 14, my freshman year of high school, I decided I was going to be Chariya. (laughs) And so the teachers would be Chakriya or Chakariya. People couldn't say it right. And I was like, I love my name. I love hearing it said correctly. It was in no way a diss to my given name. But I was kind of tired of like people making fun of it. When I was going on 15, my sister had The Outsider's. And I started reading it and I loved it and I cried. But there's a character named Cherry, who is like the love interest of the main boy. I forgot what is he Pony Boy? He's Pony Boy. Yeah. And she's like from the other side. So it's kind of forbidden love. And But they do like each other. I told my sister, oh, I got it. I want to be named Cherry. And she was like, no, there is no way I am allowing you to do that. And I was like, why? And she's just like, no, that's not, we're not doing, we're not going there. And so
0: her We are not going there. I was like, (laughs) (laughs)
1: her friend Sheila was there at our house and I was talking a lot with Sheila and stuff. And so she said, I know, why don't we call you chatty? Like you're so chatty right now that we're just going to call you chatty. And I thought, okay- I did not think that it would stick with me to my adult life. (laughs) (laughs) And that professionally, I
0: would go by Chatty. Chatty, I want to ask you one more question before we get into your books. Although it's about books. Would you tell me about your most beloved possession?
1: Fahrenheit 451, signed by Ray Bradbury. When I was in line to get his signature, I was like, I love this book. It was the one book that I love in high school. And I cannot just ask him to sign his name, that would be so impersonal. So I asked him if he could sign his favorite word and he wrote yes in capital letters with like three exclamation points and like underlined three times. And he had explained that you just gotta dip your feet in and go for it, like swim, just do it. And he was talking about how life was really short. You don't wanna have regrets. And it was the book that said, do it like, okay, you're going to go and apply for a grad school that's not in California. Do it. All right. You don't know anybody in Cambodia, go and do it. Just do it. And if you don't like it, you can come back home. It's okay to fail, but it's not okay to not do it. So it was the yes that kind of defined everything for me. It was like opening up and being able to Give myself permission to explore and play and make mistakes and, and be okay with it. I think um, Ray Bradbury is gone now. And if he was alive, I would write a letter to him explaining to him what that yes actually did for me. You know that book by Shonda Rhimes, The Year of Yes? Yeah. I think that's what happened just for someone to be like, Oh, it's okay. Because I've been told no, 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 no. Because my parents, as much as they allow me to read whatever I want, were really scared about me dying. Basically. They were just nervous about everything. So I didn't learn how to swim. Like I couldn't be on roller skates. I couldn't ride a bike. They were just so nervous about having another child die that a lot of what I heard as a child was, no, you can't do that. No, we don't do that in our culture. And so to be given a yes in caps was like
0: really freeing and liberating for me in a way as a, as a 20 year old. That's a great story. I've always loved Ray Bradbury, but now I'm going to think of him in a different way. (laughs) Chatty, I'm ready to hear more about your books. Are you ready to dive in to your favorites?
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Well, Chatty, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate, because that is the word you used, and what you've been reading lately, and then we will talk about what you should read next. Oh, I'm really excited. Me too. Me too. Tell me about the first book you love. The first book
1: I love, like Water for Chocolate, I've actually only read it once, I think, or maybe twice. It is a book in translation, written in Spanish and then translated into English. It's like this combination of uh, romance and tragedy and magical realism. And like the best part is it's food. Like it's a story about a girl named Artita, and she's coming of age in Mexico. And her conflict is basically with her mother, and she's confined by her family tradition that says that the youngest daughter has to not get married, not get pregnant, can't fall in love, have to take care of her mother. She falls in love with this boy named Pedro. It's like instantaneous. She's 15. He goes to ask for her hand in marriage. And her mom's like, no, we have this tradition in the family. Then the mom did something kind of scandalous. And she says, oh, well, why don't you marry her sister instead? And he, oh, I get so mad every time. He says yes. And his reason is because he wants to be near Tita. So, It's a story that spans her lifetime. You know, I was 15 when I read this book and I completely identified with like Tita's uh, struggle to gain identity and independence, especially from your parents. And so each section of the book is uh, titled by months and it starts with a recipe. And a thing that I love is that Tita lives in a very small world and her mother, Mama Elena, is very strict on her. So she's usually in the kitchen cooking. And she's she's the one that helps cook her family meals. And she transmits her emotions through her food. For example, when she had to cook her sister's wedding cake, and this is the sister that married Pedro, she cried into the batter. And so when the guests ate the cake, they felt her sorrow. And then they were reminded of their own lost love and they were like vomiting and stuff. So she doesn't have a voice in the beginning. This is her language. Cooking is her language. And so her emotions are put into the food, which is her outlet. And so I love this book. When I was reading it at fifteen, it was a time when like in school you're I'm reading a lot of literature that were written by white men. And like the only other cultural stuff I was reading. For school I wasn't, but I you know, Amy Tan was very popular back then. Uh-huh. That was the only other like voice from a person of color. And so this book was like, whoa, hey, books can be very alive and rich and flavorful. And you can learn about different cultures. Like the backdrop is the Mexican Revolution, which is something that I still don't really know about because I've never been taught in school about it and haven't researched enough about the Mexican Revolution. I just love this book. And I think also that it is one of my favorites book to movie. Ooh, that's fun.
0: Have you read this? I have, but like decades ago, maybe just because I think it came out in the early 2000s.
1: Well, it it actually came out, I think the first time it was published was 1989, but that was in the Spanish version. I think it came out in 1992 as
0: an English version. So maybe I really did read it a long, long time ago.
1: Oh, yeah. It's a long, long time ago. But, you know, I just love where like food is involved. Cambodian culture is very emphasized food as comfort. Uh I think most cultures do, right? Uh Food is part of celebration and marriages and even like death. When I read about food, even when it's not my own culture, I just feel like this is home and I get transported back to my mom's cooking. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing.
0: (laughs) I love that a book can do that for you. Yeah. Chatty, tell me about another book you love.
1: This is a series. It's a trilogy. I love Wildwood Chronicles mm-hmm. by Colin Malloy. Mm-hmm.
0: Have you read it? Yes, I have.
1: Okay, so the illustrations are to die for. Like, I do not destroy books, even the ones I don't like, but I contemplated tearing out some of the pages and framing it. <laughs> for my do- into my daughter's room because I really love the illustration. It's just like conjures up these feelings of staying up late and reading classic fairy tales that are darker than like Disney versions. I don't like Disney fairy tales, uh-huh. but I really like the original fairy tales where it's like doesn't always pan out the way you think it is. It's not
0: really
1: <laughs> happy <laughs> <ever> after <laughs> So I get really nostalgic reading this. And I think part of the reason why is because I was pregnant when I read this book in my first trimester. It wasn't as hard as most people, but it was hard. I was nauseous. And so basically all the joys of life was sucked out and I didn't want to do anything. Like I didn't want to read. I didn't want to knit. I didn't want
0: to go running. I didn't want to talk to people. I just wanted to stay home and watch like Gilmore Girls. Oh, and you just told us how important food was to you. I can't imagine that that was a big highlight during this time. You wouldn't want to read about it.
1: When I finally got like the pleasure, if I picked up a book, I didn't feel nauseous. I went straight to the bookstore and I found this book. And I remembered, you know, reading it and kind of like being very sentimental, touching my belly and was like, oh, I'm going to read this to you when you're older. And see, like, I'm not even telling you what the story is about. <laughs> I think what I love about books, I would say is that it takes me back to like childhood, the happy memories that I have. I get that very often from books is that it's very nostalgic read for me. I remember when I pick up a book. So the story is starts off with a girl named Prue and she's like 12 years old and she's taking care of her baby brother and they're like about to go to the library and then he gets snatched by like a murder of crows. And he gets taken to this impassable land that's out on the outskirts of Portland. And they call it the Wildwood. There's magic and it's like grand. It's kind of unbelievable. As an adult reading this, you're going to have to be like, it's okay. This doesn't happen in real life, but it's fantasy. (laughs) I was reading the Goodreads reviews and people were like, what? Who? What parent let their 12-year-old daughter take care of their baby brother and the baby brothers, like one years old. And I'm like, you guys, it's a middle grade book and it's a fantasy book. And back in the days when I was reading a lot of like half magic or those type of books, the parents were absent. Yeah.
0: Well, and I'm thinking now that does sound unrealistic today, but I started babysitting tiny, tiny kids when I was 10. It's not like that now, but that was not that long ago, you know? Yeah. He has a new one out. Well, it's not new, new, but I just noticed it in my own bookstore for the first time fairly recently. It's called The Wiz Mob and the Grenadine Kid. And he also teamed up with his wife, Carson Ellis. He wrote the book and she did the illustrations again. And it's so, so pretty, but the story is totally oh. different. Is it fantasy still? I haven't read it yet. I don't know how fantastical it is, but it's definitely not exactly realistic. I mean, it sounds a little bit like Oliver Twist, which I guess was not so unrealistic in Dickens' time, but it sounds kind of like the Mysterious Benedict Society. So I believe it's set in Europe and it's about an international mob of child thieves. I'll let you put the adjectives on that one. I think the Goodreads reviewers are going to go off on that. <laughs> Could this really happen? <laughs> but I think I would like it a lot. Tell me about your third
1: favorite. So my third favorite is a book that I read in January of this year. It's called Everything Here is Beautiful. Uh-huh. Oh, you know, I love books that make me cry and, and not in like a formulaic sense, but the ones where my empathy is so heightened and... My soul is like relating to the story or the character so much that I'm like left weeping. Like I cried ugly tears. This story went deep, I think. I think that the the writing is pretty simple, but it's basically, it's a story of two sisters. And I think they're Chinese American or they're Taiwanese American. So I'm, I'm sorry if I got it, get it wrong. But the younger sister is named Lucia and she has schizophrenia. And the older sister is named Miranda and she's more strict. It changes point of view of the book narrator. So you get to see like Lucia's reality when she's going through an episode and then you get to see it switches to what happens or how the the people around her, like her sister, her husband, um, how they see her illness and how they witness the incident. And so they see it differently. One of the reasons why I love this is because we talk, you know, I, I told you that my parents had PTSD, So in my family, we kind of talked about it a little bit, um, about mental health and mental illness. But I still don't think like in the Asian American community, we talk about it so much. It's still very misunderstood in every culture, I think. And even though in the Cambodian community, we, we talk about in terms of PTSD and the genocide, we don't actually talk about it or allow for it in everyday discussion. And I think we need to. When we talk about... Mental illness is still sort of done in a whisper, and we don't do it with the person who has the mental illness. It's like family members talking to each other about that person. And the reason why I love this book so much is because you get to see Lucia's side, and then you see that her reality, for her, it makes sense. Part of the story is that she sees these serpents, and she feels like she needs to do something. Like it's telling her, if you don't do this, I'm going to hurt your child, And so she feels like in order to protect her child, she has to do whatever they say. So it might be stripping and being naked or whatever it is. And for her, it makes so much sense. But outside of her mind, it doesn't make sense to us. I finally felt like no matter if you relate it to Lucia or Miranda, that you're going to be seen. I don't think that there's any family that's not touched by mental illness. And so I think it's such a relatable book. My heart just hurt for both of them. And the author, like Mira T. Lee, she wrote it with such grace and it feels real realistic. And a part of it is because I am a therapist and I get to hear the stories from those that do have mental illness and how misunderstood they feel. And that they, the moment you tell anybody that you have a mental illness, you get defined by your illness. All of a sudden you are just ceased to be a whole person. And so what I think Mary T. Lee did was that she gave Lucia a well-rounded story, you know, have the capacity to love and to be kind and to, you know, to be compassionate instead of just like, oh, she's erratic. I think oftentimes that's what we think of when we think of schizophrenia. Oh,
0: they're erratic. They're not safe. That she did a really good job with the complexity of the relationships and the illness itself. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear that it really resonated with you and that you really enjoyed it. Me too. All right, Chatty. Now, what about the book you hate? Oh, the book I hate, the book I hate. <laughs> I'm like
1: swaying right now to comfort myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: Eleanor and Park.
0: So tell me about it.
1: Okay, so I I think I have to tell you about what my reading experience was like. So I picked it up at Barnes and Nobles. It was like staff recommendation. And NPR said it's like this new book and, you know, it's different. And, oh, there's a multiracial male protagonist in it. I'm like, I got to read this. I take it home. I'm reading it. I'm reading it. And I go, what the f***? (laughs) (laughs) Why did she say this? And when I say, why did she say this? I'm talking about Eleanor and I'm talking about why the author Rainbow Rao decided to write it like this. And then after I read it, I had this strange feeling in my body and I wasn't able to identify what that feeling was. It was uncomfortable, but I wasn't sure, like, was I being overly sensitive? And I left it on the bookshelf. I was like, I'm going to return to this. I don't dislike it because it's YA. Everyone says they love it. It gets good reviews on Amazon you know, New York Times bestseller. I believe them. And so I kept it and kept it and kept it. Every time I walked past it, I would like bristle. I hate this book. Why is it here? No, I decided to take the book to the little free library and I left it there. And then when I came back home, I was like regretting that I did that. I'm like, I don't want anybody to read this book. Go get it back. So I ran to the little free library and I went to go get it, but it was gone. <laughs> <laughs> The feeling that I finally identified is that it's what happens when it's, there's casual racism in it. It was a letdown because I think the author could have done so much more with this book because it's supposed to be different, right? The appeal to this book for young readers is that it's not a thick, skinny white girl with blonde hair. Oh, and the male protagonist, he's half Korean. That's supposed to be different because they are outcasts. I'm like, yay for the outcast. I get it. You know, I was in high school once. (laughs) (laughs) One of the passages that they finally hold hands and he's like being like being very poetic about it. And he's thinking in his head, like holding Eleanor's hand is like holding a butterfly. It's like alive and beautiful, blah, blah, blah. And then like a few sentences down, he's like, I wonder what it's like to rape a hand. And you're like, what? Why would you say that? And why would you put that? And I think it's irresponsible in a book in which Eleanor is, you know, threatened with the possibility of sexual violence by her stepfather. I'm still astounded by that because as a therapist, I have worked with survivors in an everyday language. We don't use that word like, well, it just means that he really loves her. He doesn't like how he looks. Apparently, his eyes are small. And Eleanor comments on that. And she's like, oh, his eyes got wide. No, it can't get that wide because, you know, he's Asian. So it's small eyes. And then she says, well, that must be the most racist thing. But that's it. Like, there's no consequence to it that passage kind of just sits with you. And to me, it taunts you. It's that little kid in um, elementary school that's like, na 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 nah. what are you going to do? I said this. You can't do anything to me. And I can tell you that there are a lot of Asian Americans that read that passage. They're taken back to that time when they're in the playground. And this is a personal story. A boy comes up to you and you're about to go run off and, and play with your friends. And he like pulls on his eyes and he goes, ching-chong, ching-chong can you really see like I see? And that's where I feel like people don't understand microaggression yeah. and like casual racism. Yeah. There's like this passage too, when Eleanor. She comes and visits the family. And so she sees like the mom and she's like, Oh, you know, the mom is reminding me of the China dolls in the wizard of Oz. And she wonders what it's like when the dad took her from Korea and put her in the back of his pocket. And I was like, if the author just took a course in Asian American experience, she would understand why that was not okay to write. And that if you are going to write that, if you're going to talk about race, then let's talk about it, you know, like make it different, make it a book where it's not like just sitting there on the page, but you actually have a full discussion about that. I get so exhausted hating this book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I enjoyed hearing you articulate why.
1: Chatty, what are you reading right now? Well, I'm listening to and reading on my Kindle, um, Lincoln in the Bardot. Mm-hmm. So good. I really like the performance piece of it and uh-huh. like the different voices and the accents. I just love that. Oh, I got A Place for Us and I'm about 30 pages in. I'm not quite sure just yet how I feel about it. It switches point of view a little too often, but I know that you I'm, like it.
0: I do like that book. It sounds promising for you based on what you like. It's not very magical. It doesn't feel otherworldly in the way that some of your favorites do. Like it's thoroughly grounded in actual place and time. These fictional made up people are thoroughly grounded in actual place and time, (laughs) but it does have that richness. And you seem to like stories that rotate perspectives. And I hope that once you get the hang of what's going on, that you'll really enjoy it. Although if you didn't, that could be a really interesting conversation too. (laughs) Chatty, what do you want to be different in your reading life?
1: I will have to say, one, I want to read less. I know, I just said it. <laughs> it's summer. I need to be outside. But I think like once I started Bookstagram, I was just like over consuming, And I was forgetting like names and places and important events in books. And so I do want to read less and be more mindful of how I read and when I read. And then I really, really love, have you seen Godless? I have not. Okay. So Godless is more like the traditional Western, you know, it's like dusty. It's not as uh, violent. I mean, people do get killed, but uh, it's like cowboys on horseback, you know, I love that. And then I love Westworld. I haven't read a Western, I don't think. And so I would really love a good Western story that's like in line with Godless. The other thing that I mentioned to you was that my daughter is half white and she's half Southeast Asian. I would love to get books for her that have characters that are multiracial. There aren't a lot of books about mixed race kids who are white and Southeast Asian, but I would like to try to get some recommendations if you have it. Just so that I want her to grow up knowing that there are people that look like her and that have parents who may not come from the same race, and that she's, she's also a full person, that she isn't necessarily defined by her ethnicity or her nationality, but those are just parts of her.
0: Okay, so with the kind of books you're looking for, I think we could legitimately fill like 14 episodes of What Should I Read Next? Obviously, it would be great to find wonderful Cambodian fiction for you, but I'm sure you've looked for it and you know Far, far better than Mm -hmm. I do. I mean, I can read what the issues are in periodicals, but Mm -hmm. you know, that's something your family has lived. How there's so few works translated that, like you were saying, like the intellectual and creative pursuits were repressed. Is that the right word? Eliminated. For so long Mm -hmm. that it just, even the works that were created very, very few have been translated. And there are some incredible nonfiction works. And you referenced how reading one when you were in high school was so important to you. So I just want to say the thing that I really wish I could find for you does not actually exist. I know. And I know you know, but Mm -hmm. I just want you to know that I know. (laughs) Okay. But I do have some ideas for you and I'm really curious to hear how they sound to you. And some that I think sound like they may be really good to you aren't exactly perfect, but it sounds like you read so widely. So even though we can't check all your boxes at the same time, I think that some of these sound really promising for different reasons. Okay. Go for it. Okay. I'm going to start by riffing off Wildwood. I'm wondering about a book called The Hazelwood by Melissa Alberts. Have you seen it?
1: I have it right now.
0: Have you opened it? (laughs) Uh, No. Okay. Because I overbuy. (laughs) (laughs) What's that thing where your eyes are too big for your stomach, but with books? Because I have that. Uh, Yeah, I do too. Here's what really got me thinking about this book. It's when you said that you like the old fairy tales, not like the newer kind of sanitized, like happy, feely ones, but the old ones that are kind of like grizzly and gruesome. Mm -hmm. This book is like a fairy tale come to life and it's a fairy tale of the grisly and gruesome variety. So this is not for the same readers as Wildwood, unless those readers are adults or older, older teens. Um, I would not hand this to a 12 year old like I might Wildwood. I really like it for you because in the same way that Wildwood is set right off the edge of actual realistic contemporary Portland. The Hazelwood is set right off the edge of actual realistic contemporary Manhattan. I do want to emphasize that this book is not for everyone because it is dark and it plays off old fashioned fairy tales and they are grisly, but I think it could be a lot of fun for you because it's got that fantasy element. It's that nice mix of fantasy and books and reality. What you may know, if you've already looked at the cover, is that the story here centers around a girl named Alice. And she's grown up with her mom, and they've always moved from town to town her entire life. And she knows that they're trying to dodge the bad luck that is rooted somehow in this book of fairy tales that Alice's grandmother wrote. Alice comes home from school, and her mom has disappeared because she's been taken. Uh And there's like this page torn out of the book on the floor, and Alice is like they've come for her. Like what has happened? So the note says, stay away from the Hazelwood. So of course that's where she goes, but she does it with the help of one of her friends, because what you need to know about this book of stories, it's called Tales from the Hinterland. I think that Alice's grandmother wrote is that it's extremely hard to find copies, but it's this huge cult classic and the fandom is intense on this. So of course, one of Alice's school friends, Elliot is a mega fan mega nerdy completely obsessed fan of this book but you can't find any copies because they've all been taken out of circulation so they have to go find a copy and he knows all this weird trivia about her grandmother's book so they make their way to the hazelwood and then it gets really scary but for a while they're like running around manhattan where these characters from the hazelwood that have basically been penned into existence by alice's grandmother start like coming for her (gasps) <gasps> okay, your guests Make it sound like you may read this soon.
1: I've been meaning to read it for a very long time. Ooh, okay.
0: I'm wondering about When the Elephants Dance by Tess Ariza-Holta. This is a novel that came out 10, 15 years ago. I'm going to start by telling you what the title means. And first of all, this is a story of the Philippines during World War II. <gasps> so a father in the novel explains to one of the kids here's what the war is like. When the elephants dance, the chickens must be careful. So the elephants are the Americans and the Japanese. And the Philippines are the small chickens who are going to get underfoot of this conflict. Mm -hmm. And it is not pretty for them. So what I like about this for you is you've picked books that are like really atmospheric. Some of them have these magical elements. They're told from multiple perspectives. They have these really rich stories and lots of characters. And I think this book has those things for you. And it's set in Southeast Asia like you're looking for. And it's about a family who's hiding with their neighbors in this tiny cellar because That's the only way to stay safe. Like they only come out occasionally for necessities before they retreat back underground. They're telling each other family stories and folktales. So there's this history and there's this family folklore and there are serious elements of um, like a little bit of magic and the supernatural. What I also like about this is that the author was inspired by her father's experiences during this period in time. She really wanted to tell this story that honored the courage her father and her family displayed that they needed because otherwise they never would have made it through this time period. You tell me, how does that sound to you?
1: I love it because it's World War Two, but in an area of the world that we don't really talk about, about what happens during the conflict like my, my mom has stories about like Japanese bombing Southeast Asia. So Oh
0: wow. This
1: is very yeah, this is very interesting to me. I've been thinking, you know, I have a lot of um World War Two books on my shelves, but it's mostly between like like Euro- European nations. And so this is a forgotten piece of history that people don't talk about what happens in like the Pacific, Southeast Asia. I want this
0: <laughs> now, I have to go buy more books. <laughs> okay. Do you want to talk Westerns? Yes. There's two that come to mind immediately that I like because I think they're, well, see, you've got all this Netflix behind you that like (laughs) probably have acquainted you with the genre. I haven't watched those. So I don't know what you're coming to the book world with, but I do know that there are two Westerns that I personally read and really loved that many, many readers who have never read Westerns or who didn't think they would like Westerns, who didn't think they would ever want to pick up a Western, read these books and really enjoyed them. And one is really short and one is really long. So I'm going to give you both and you can decide. Okay. The first is news of the world. It's by Paulette Giles. And this is a little book, the hardcover small. I think it's out in paperback by now, but (gasps) I have it. What? No, (laughs) no, that's a good thing though. You already have it. Mm -hmm. So we won't like pile on to your book buying issue you have going on. But you could have the satisfaction of reading it like this afternoon if you wanted to. Okay. This is a story about an unlikely friendship and courage in the face of difficult circumstances. It's after the Civil War. And there had been this man who made his living by going from town to town, literally reading the news. That's how they kept abreast of what was happening in the nation and to a smaller extent, the world. So he's going down to town and because he's, considered to be trustworthy. And as a professional traveler, basically, he agrees to take this young girl who had been captured by the Kiowa people and had then been freed back to her family. So they go on the road together and the road is really, really dangerous. And she has grown up with the Kiowa. She does not speak any English, but she does really want to go back to them. And over the course of the story, you understand why she wants to go back, why she doesn't want to go home, why it's so dangerous on the road, like more about the circumstances of the time. They learn to to communicate. And it's just so touching and tender to see how this unlikely friendship forms. And then at the end, he has to make an important decision about her future. And it's really satisfying the way it all plays out. On the other end of the spectrum, we have Larry McMurtry's Lonesome Dove, which is actually the third book in the series, but Lonesome Dove is probably the best known and it 100% stands on its own. And I have to tell you, I was just... Thinking about this book because when I read it, I read it on audiobook. So I never like walked around my house or put this book in my purse. And I was at a bookstore over the weekend and I saw this book on the Great American Read table. And I went, Holy smokes! Like, no wonder people talk about this being a doorstop. It's 900 something pages long, it's five inches thick. Like, it's a really big book, Chatty. But a lot of people say, like, I would have read 5,000 pages about these characters and where they're going. So here's the common reaction to Lonesome Dove. I'm not going to tell you very much. Lonesome Dove is this tiny Texas town, and it's called Lonesome Dove because that's where this group of cowboys sets out on a cattle drive. They're going to Montana. But what people say after reading this book is, I had no idea. I would care so much about a couple of cowboys and the women around them. If you had told me that I would care this much about these guys on page four, I never would have believed you. But oh my goodness, I would follow them or read about them anywhere. He just writes uh, really touchingly and fittingly. The way he tells the story really seems to do justice to the character. It really suits them. You know, like the style matches the story. There's this really interesting assortment of heroes and outlaws and prostitutes and like proper ladies and Native Americans and people who are settling and people on the road and people who are trying to eke out an existence on their farms. And it covers a lot of ground. Like if you like a sweeping saga where you cover many, many miles and uh, to a lesser extent, many years, this is a great book for you. I would be very interested to hear based on your Netflix and HBO experience, how either one of these books feels afterwards compared to the small screen Western feel.
1: They all sound so
0: good. (laughs) I love a sweeping saga. A lot of readers do. I am highly sympathetic to that feeling. And then for your daughter, there is a children's book and it's called the hello goodbye window. Do you know this book? Oh, no, I don't really cheerful, whimsical children's book. It just looks so happy. It's gorgeously illustrated. It's a Caldecott winner and it's by Norton Jester, who wrote the Phantom Tollbooth. So now he has a picture book and he's not the illustrator. Chris Rushka is, but the hello, goodbye window is where this young girl waves hello and goodbye to her grandparents. Wow. And one of her grandparents is white and her other grandparent is African-American. And they just have this really, I mean, it looks charming in the book window in their kitchen that you can see a reflection in, you can climb into, you can, you know, wave hello and goodbye to your grandparents. In it's something that you could start enjoying with your daughter almost immediately. Okay. And for you, there is a lot of good stuff out there. And we just had a re- episode recently with Sachi Olgebright, who's a yes, I heard okay, mm-hmm. good. who's a Japanese American who specifically wanted books featuring mixed race characters. And so we talked about that on the show. But also, there's something like one hundred and sixty five comments on that post as of right now. And there are so many more suggestions and comments. So I really encourage readers to go back and look at the show notes to many episodes have these extensive list of listener recommendations for what those guests should read next. So if you resonated with any guest picks, go look at the show notes. But in the meantime, the hello goodbye window. I'm so excited to get it. (laughs) Chatty, of all the books we talked about today, what are you thinking you want to read next?
1: They all sound so good, but I'm not in a rush to go buy new books. (laughs) So I think... I will start reading Hazelwood and then I will read, what's the other one that you told me that I have? Was it News of the World? Yes, that one. Oh, I think I will start with News of the World because you said it's shorter, right? It is shorter. I'm going to go and do that. And today I have mm, kind of a free day. So
0: oh, good to go sit
1: and read. Yes. Oh,
0: well, I do hope that it's a really good sign that you already had it on your shelves. I hope that means that you picked it up because it is the right book for you and you just needed a push. Awesome. Thank you so much, Anne. Well, thanks so much for talking books with me today. I'm so happy. <laughs> hey, readers. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Chatty today. And I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 146. That's one four six. And it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Anne with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Anne Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. Check out my events page at annebogle.com slash events so I can see you and tell you happy reading in person somewhere around the country this fall. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekaczek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, Ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.